Absolutely. Um, you started off a little earlier by talking about uh, restraint, uh, and I think we can uh, more broadly get away from just that term sure. and begin to talk about um, restrictive practices in general because they can involve more than restraint. So maybe you can uh, tell us uh, at that broad level, what are restrictive practices? Yeah, and I think, you know, when we look at things through our lens, you know, we are as a system on five different continents now. And I think as you look at it around the world, at least in the U.S. system, it is around typically the idea of restraint and seclusion. Um, but when you look at it in terms of a restrictive practice, and we get this when we're doing our work in England and the in, uh, in Australia, um, it's much more than that. It's broader than that. And so... I want to look at, as it's laid out in the Queensland Department of Education's procedure restrictive practices, oftentimes referred to um, internally as RP, where restrictive practices actually include seclusion, containment, physical, mechanical, or chemical restraint. It could be part of a clinical holding uh, thing that needs to be done. The other thing is, as it goes broader in, anything that we're really doing that restricts the freedom of anybody and could be actually at times harmful if overdone. And so when you look at this, um, it's only permitted when it's reasonable in all circumstances. And that's including what is known about the student, their specific issues of that day, um, where there may be no less restrictive measure available to respond to the behavior in the circumstances that may be threatening their self or somebody else. Uh, when you paint the picture that broadly, Tim, it, it seems as though you're describing a restrictive practice almost as a philosophy about the way we deal with people. Yeah, it truly is. Um, obviously, uh, there have been restrictive practices around as long as people have been charged or in charge of caring for other people. Um, we must by now have some research uh, that tells us about restrictive practices. Yeah, there really has been. And again, we, you know, we can go way back to the stuff that most people think of when we talk about behavior modification and behavior management. We think of things like Skinner and Pavlov and those. But, you know, what we've seen here and really for the good as a parent of a child with special needs, I'm really excited about the research that's been being done around the world around it. Specifically to Australia, in 2019, we have the Queensland Human Rights Act of 2019 legislation. We also have the Disability Royal Commission and research and advocacy initiatives from scholars such as Kevin Ann Huckshorn, who laid out really the cornerstone for the development of the Department of Education's procedure restrictive practices. You know, the implementation goal for the department is to promote really a high quality inclusive education in safe, supportive, and disciplined school environments where all students, staff, visitors, anybody around the school and a part of the school can feel safe, secure, and respected. It fits in really well with the MANT philosophy overall. The procedure also prescribes the circumstances in which restrictive practices might be permitted to be used in state schools. It talks about reporting, notification, which is huge as a parent for me, the oversight of the obligations of the state school personnel. It also looks at the obligations of the principals and the staff to proactively respond uh, to an at-risk student whose behaviors uh, may be to try to avoid. And you know what we're trying to do is get pre-proactive in that. And our goal is to reduce those restrictive practices, though they may 
need to be needed at times to keep people safe. The goal is ultimately to get away from it. And so when you look at the procedure restrictive practices, it is ultimately based on the practice principles of regard for human rights, again, coming out of the Queensland Human Rights Act of 2019, safeguarding students and staff. We wanna have transparency and accountability and the consultation around positive behavior support. When you look at restrictive practices more broadly that way, as, as you are, as something almost that's a, ph- a philosophy, if you will, uh, and also a potentially a restriction or a violation even of a person's human rights, it, it may seem obvious yeah. about why we would want to reduce the use of restricted practices. But why don't you address that question for us directly? Why do we want to reduce the use of restrictive practices? I think there's a strong agreement. If you look at it across professionals and advocacy groups, that the use of restrictive practices can be harmful. Ultimately, it breaches human rights. It compromises the therapeutic relationship. It breaks the trust between, in this case, education providers and those who experience restrictive practices. You know, for years, the MANT system's goal has been around forwarding the ideas associated with positive behavior support so that people can feel an increase in their quality of life. Increasing quality of life comes when we have less restrictive practices, and that's not only for the students, but it's also for the educators and the families alike. There's also a great deal of research that tells us that uh, about the value of positive versus negative reinforcement, and I think we can make a pretty clear case here that restraint or restrictive practices, rather, are quite obviously a form of negative reinforcement, any form yeah. that it might take. So if we can look at a subset, then, of restrictive practices, a very specific subset, uh, and that would be restraint. And the question is, with all that we've had to say here about uh, the research around restrictive practices and the reasons not to do it, what is restraint and why do we need it? Yeah, it's interesting because in the last few years, especially as I've gotten more and more involved with advocacy groups as a parent, and as I've gone out and have been able to speak at conferences and international conferences, and people find out what I do for a living, sometimes they're like, well, how can you do that? You know, we shouldn't have any types of restraints, you know, because that is ultimately the goal. But, you know, Our system is set up to try whenever possible to use the least restrictive interactions possible. It's in order to really try to keep people from hurting themselves or hurting others. And the man system only teaches physical restraint. I mentioned all those other types of restraint. We only really focus on physical restraint because we feel that um, it doesn't have to be something that's done in a real long time. And so the way we define physical restraint is that it is limiting and redirecting but not immobilizing a person's movements to protect themselves or others from harm. It's the last resort. But sometimes, Ralph, it's necessary to keep people safe as well as those who are living and working alongside that person. Tim, you've made a very compelling case here uh, by talking about the research and also some of the sort of collateral effects of what what rest, what restraint can, can do or rather restrictive practices. I think it's reasonable to ask you then, um, Knowing what we know about the uh, downside to it, why do we? Why does the man system teach restraint? Yeah, well, we feel that it's better to teach appropriate physical restraint skills rather than to not teach staff anything at all, and have them at that time resort to an inappropriate physical interaction due to their own anger, their own frustration, their desperation, their fear. 
We encourage and teach a graded system of alternatives. We don't start at restraint. And that philosophy is a big part of the entire Mant system. And it's based, again, back on those principles that all people have the right to be treated with unconditional dignity and respect. And we especially want to put that in play when we are using physical restraint. In my own world, I want Tyler's educators who work with him to have some sort of training to help him keep him safe, whether that's him trying to hurt himself or heaven forbid him trying to hurt another student in his classroom or one of the teachers. And, and so it's true when it comes to him, you know, overall, I want people trained how to work with them. If they're going to have to put their hands on him to protect him, then they should know how to put their hands on him in a safe way to protect him. That isn't going to cause him harm in the things they're doing to try to restrict him from hurting himself or others. One of the things that's also really important to me uh, that we do at the Mance system is that all of our physical skills are independently evaluated. So it's not just a group of people who've been doing this for a long time coming up with it. But we have everything independently outside evaluated by a guy by the name of Dr. Chris Van E, who's been doing this since 2001, to make sure that what we're using is as safe for the people who it's being done on as the people who are doing it. And for me as a parent, I cannot love that enough. It's constantly evaluated to continue to look at, is it still safe to do? You know, that's, that's ultimately what we want, safety.